Hello, I'm Laura. And I'm Cam. And welcome to the Giving Voice podcast from Chandler House at UCL, where each month we invite special guests to help us explore an area of speech and language therapy you've always wanted to know a little bit more about. Plus, each episode we will share our peaks and troughs of being a student speech and language therapist, and we get to stick our noses into the lives of our fellow students at UCL. I know. I mean, it might, the sound quality might be similar, but we are actually face to face right now. In the flesh. Yes. (laughs) Really fun getting to see you. (laughs) Yes, we're having a a socially distanced park meetup right now. Yeah, it's part of the rules now, guys. (laughs) Yeah, I like the way we've chronicled our, our lockdown experience throughout yeah, this actually, podcast. Yeah, it's true. It's nice to have like a virtual diary of the whole thing. <laughs> so what have you been up to? What you cuz you're not you're not living in London at the moment. Uh, no, I'm not living in London. I'm up in London uh, seeing my boyfriend. Um we we've bubbles together. So uh, that's been nice. Um, but I'm living currently in Epsom and which is where my where I'm from originally. Um, and I'm working in a COVID rehabilitation hospital not too far away from where I live, which has been really interesting. Mm. Um, and I've been doing mainly physio. <laughs> it's also we're, we're also having a very British meetup in the park because it is not sunny. It's not nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's, there's like it's very windy and like rain is threatening. So yeah, yeah, it could it could literally tumble down at any minute. It doesn't feel great. No. <laughs> anyway, um, carry on. I think it's died down slightly. Yeah, I'll just keep talking. See how it goes. <laughs> um, so I've been doing mainly physiotherapy um, with people that have been in comas for a really long time, really poorly with COVID, um, and just getting them up and walking again is the main aim, I guess. Um, so that's been really interesting. But just generally working in like a hospital that's just been set up. Um, and with lots of different health professionals around, it's been really great. Um, obviously, under not great circumstances, but um, yeah, it's been really interesting. And I've actually got to do like a little bit of voice therapy and a little bit yeah, of stage therapy. Yeah, I was going to ask if you were getting to do any speech and language yeah, therapy. A little bit. It's obviously, it's not a priority if we're being honest. But um, mm. yeah, I've managed to like snuck in a couple of bits. And um, a speech therapist has been on the ward, and I've shadowed her when she's been about, which has been oh, that's really great. Good. Yeah, it's been nice. It's been good. She comes in on Wednesdays. So if I'm if I'm on shift on a Wednesday, then I get to spend some time with her, which is good. Amazing. And so, how long is the like normal stay for someone when they come into the rehab hospital? Uh, so we aim for two weeks, but I would say it's slightly longer than that at the moment, on average, depending on the patient. Uh, we have got some patients that haven't actually had COVID, um, and we're just doing some general rehab with them. Uh, but yeah, I'd say like two to three weeks is probably the average length of mm. stay. Um, so quite a long time and you get to know them really well in that time um, and actually we've had a couple of issues of people not wanting to leave because that leap from being in an institution where you're having therapy all the time to going home and the problems that you're having being more evident because you're kind of living a more normal life uh, it's quite a big leap for people mm. do you have psychologists on the ward as we well? have mental health professionals come occasionally because a lot of people have PTSD for obvious reasons Mm. Um, but it's it's mainly medical to be honest. Right. How about you, Laura? How are you doing? I'm good. Good. Yes. Um, feeling pretty pleased to have 
coursework assignments in, Viva done. Oh, thank God, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, which was a bit of an experience because obviously we had to do our Vivas um, over Teams, Microsoft Teams. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, How was yours? Did you find it okay? Oh, it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happened. That, that kind of, you know, you do, you try and do loads and loads of revision and then. You know, it's over so quickly. Yeah, it so quickly, isn't it? Yeah, um, but it was fine. You know, a lot of um, just motor mouthing, a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of that. When you've got four minutes, you got to squeeze in as much yeah. information as you can. Go. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just really happy for that to all be done. Yeah. Good. Anyway, so this week we've got uh, an interview with Christella Anthony. Yes, very exciting. Yeah. She came to give us a lecture. Uh, back when lectures were happening, I can't remember when. Uh, <laughs> Another lifetime yeah, ago. Back when that was happening, um, about transgender voice, mm. um, which is a really, really interesting lecture and one that I won't forget in a hurry. Yeah, no, she's a, she's such an interesting person and such a personality. Mm. So yeah, um, let's let's hear a little bit more from Christella. Let's do it. <laughs> Hi Christella and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Hello. Laura, nice to speak to you. <laughs> um, so first of all, could you tell me a little bit more about your work as a speech and language therapist? Well, I'm a consultant speech and language therapist and I work in voice, so I'm a voice specialist. Um, it's another way I refer to myself. I qualified in 1995 um, from UCL and um, and I had the opportunity to work in a variety of settings, you know, community, wards, clinics. And from about 1997, I began really specialising in voice and, and seeing mainly outpatients who were um, voice patients. Um, and that was mainly in the NHS. But um, because I started off in the NHS um, in, a, in a kind of a part time role, because <clears throat> I really wanted the job in this particular place, working with a particular manager. And um, it was a part time job. But actually, that gave, I was still involved in a family business then, and it gave me a perfect opportunity to develop, after a couple of years, some private work alongside, not because of any huge ambition for that, actually, but because I just kept getting requests from ENTs to, you know, do I see anyone? And if you're in a hospital like Charing Cross, which I did end up in after the North Mid, um, there's a big ENT department there, so there's usually potential for lots of work. And so it's been a combination of... Um, private and NHS for a long, long time, but now predominantly um, private because I have my own clinic and run a business. So that's, that's um, you know, you need kind of quite good attention on that. But I've kept a little small uh, job at Chang Cross, uh, allied to a joint voice clinic and a few specialist outpatients. So, so that's what I do. And it was predominantly adults, but um, as I've gone more and more private, there's been more requests for working with children's voice disorders. And that's been a, a part of my work. But because I was at Charing Cross, I had um, a perfect opportunity really to enter working with transgender voice. And for a long time now, say since 2001, when I got that job there, the Gender Identity Clinic, um, you know, I've, been, I've had a big proportion of uh, my caseload is, is transgender work. So it was quite nice to be at, in, um, maybe at the forefront of that. You know, there were certainly clinicians doing it, but it was not not such a big job I suppose for so long and then that job grew from one day to four days at one point so uh, that's a lot a lot of people uh, to see and, and gain experience with and develop training courses and and uh, treatment protocols from that. So when did that all kind of kick off the work in transgender voice when did it start getting more and more in demand? Um, 
Well, I remember when I started, there was a job, I did a job, I took the job in 2001 and a, and a lady who'd been working in the field for ages, who I admired a lot, called Judy Challoner, she'd been the main therapist in London seeing people and she'd moved into doing it just privately. And um, there was always a one day job at Charing Cross. But when I inherited that job, there was a 10 month waiting list, which gives you a, an idea that people had to wait 10 months to get an initial assessment. Gosh. Which I thought that just has to change. That's that's not enough provision. That's impossible almost for some therapist to develop. You know, there was meant to be a research component to that job, but clearly no provision made for research. And actually, I, I'm not shy of say, saying to people that I went for that job about two years earlier and didn't get it because mm. um, I asked that question. Well, it's a one day job with a long waiting list. So what's the what's the research support? And because I asked the question, the feedback I got was it looked like I wasn't committed to research, which I thought, hmm. Actually, I asked a practical question um, that was, and it was realistic. There was never any scope for that realistically in the job. You know, I was just gathering data with my Laringa graph recordings and those kind of things. So mm. I could, I could uh, prove efficacy and outcomes that way, but not in a way that there was any, any chance to do something that meaningful um, with it. So I would say it really blew up. Even at that point, it was, it never, it was about three years later, I'd say, that things started really growing. Um, so, and about three years after that, it became like everybody, you know, there were so many more therapists doing it and, um, it just kind of grew big, big time from about 2000, um, and 11, 12 onwards. Is it, and, is it just specialists that work in that field or can it be Well, more... I would have said to you when I first did it, you needed to be, you know, have some voice skills. You need to be working for a couple of years to do it. But because needs must and because of the the lack of kind of uniformity in the way people do get their, their, their specialist training or any kind of training post qualification, you're really dependent on which therapist comes your way that's willing to kind of do the training or which department you're in and, and how much you know, you're able to gather from your colleagues. Um, I'm, I'm all for kind of having a more structured um, specialist training post graduation. Um, but for now, that's how it works. And um I definitely trained people from scratch post-qualification. Um, and uh, I've done that with, with somebody at Charing Cross who then went on to um, get my job when I left that place. And um, I've done that with um, somebody just in my private practice. So it works in the NHS because I'm doing the same level of specialist training and the same care into making sure they understand the processes, have the right background, um, do enough observation of me, um, you know and have enough supervision and I think a lot of people can't offer that but if someone's going to work under my kind of you know method of, of, of voice change I want them to be secure and, and um, you know be, have a consistency because consistency and, and getting secure outcomes for people is what makes um, people believe that it works and it, and it not only grows your reputation or the reputation of the department but it, it, it um, you get successful outcomes it, you're, you're achieving client goals and the bottom line in all voice therapy is are you helping people achieve their goals, you know, that they are capable of achieving? Um, obviously, some people have limitations, but, you know, the whole goal of therapy is to make a change and usually a positive change that benefits the life of the client. So, and how do you how do you measure those goals? Is it all just on an individualised goal basis or do you have specific measures that you use? Um, more or less, it's, it's very individualised. However, because most people... I would say the majority ask for a similar kind of outcome. So if I'm working with trans females, which is kind of a bigger part of the, the trans caseload for most uh, speech therapists, um, I ask them, I do a very little quick subjective assessment beforehand, which is, you know, how satisfied are you with your voice currently? You know, 
how do you think it sounds now? And I use these subjective headings from the TVQ, which is the, um, a voice questionnaire that's like been standardized. Um, and then I ask them, ideally, how would they like their voice to sound? And I, I tick the boxes that the client tells me. I don't tell them how they should sound. I don't say, well, you know, we'll be happy with a gender neutral voice or, or be happy with a somewhat female voice. Sometimes, very rarely, people ask me for a gender neutral voice or sometimes they ask me for... Um, you know, somewhat female, they think that's all they can achieve. But I, if I say ideally what you would like, I think 85 to 90% will be choosing very female to, you know, female to very female. Um, and so I've always been driven by that goal, really. Um, clearly, if there are massive limitations why somebody wouldn't do that, you would work with them to, you know, to get what was possible for them. But I've, I've always thought things are more possible than people, people think. Mm. Um, I've got one more question on this topic, and that's, what are the biggest misconceptions that people have about voice work with this client group? Well, there are there are quite a few. Um, I think the, the well, probably the biggest one is that people feel that there's only limited voice change possible um, by feminising, and so that they're or, or masculinising either way. But particularly for feminising, because there's no help with the hormones, because once you take oestrogen, it doesn't have an effect on changing your voice. Everything is done by yourself and by the person you work with, you know, helping you do that. So the you know, people are think, well, I, you know, they contact me about surgery before they've even thought about therapy, which is, is really something I'd like to change. Because while I've been the probably the biggest supporter of voice surgery since I've been doing this, because I was so experienced with it, because a lot were carried out at Charing Cross in the old days. Um, you know, for, for several years, it was it was kind of routinely done at Charing Cross Hospital. Um, it was only when um, for about 2003. 13, 14, it became a non-core procedure, the surgery. So um, a lot of the therapists now aren't so experienced with it, but it can be a really helpful adjunct and support to voice change. However, 80, 90% of, of the work I do is with people who don't have surgery. And so it's very possible to achieve, you know, the outcomes the clients are searching for with just a good therapy model and, and some skills in terms of helping people navigate through barriers, because there are lots and lots of doubts and challenges um, for trans people changing voice. So there's that misconception that only limited change is possible. Of course, for some people, that might be the case. And also, I think it's important that SLTs don't impose their view that only a little bit of change is possible. Sometimes I see a fashion for kind of pushing just a gender neutral voice because somehow that's more authentic. But more authentic for who? You know, I never want to put my view onto the client. The client says to me, I want to sound female, very female. I'm going to work to that until my ability says I can't do any more for you. Um, I'm not going to make a judgment that they want to sound very female. I think, well, if you've always felt in the wrong gender and you want to sound very female, that's what I'm going to do. So mm. it's really about listening to the client. And I think there's been a bit of a fashion for moving off that and, and, and the PC-ness of telling people, what you know, what's, 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 you know, it's okay if you sound just a little bit, that's just enough. Everyone's really accepting of trans stuff. Actually, no, their, their day-to-day experience is not that. The gender academics, for example, sometimes say to me, oh, aren't you contributing to a gender binary by making people sound, you know, like very female? And I'm thinking, um, some people want to be in a gender binary. Yeah. And just because, yeah. you, know, that, that, you know, that is actually the majority. And, and, and while I love gender diversity, and I think it's great if you want to be, gen, you know, non you know, non-binary is, is great and it's a, it's, a, it's a place that I would heavily, heavily support and always do. But, you know, if that's not what the person wants to be in a kind of a neutral, non, you know, non-conforming way, then, then I'm not going to say, suggest that to them. You no. know, I think that would be um, 
insulting on some level, you know. And it's not a client-centred goal at the end of the day, is it? It's not a client-centred goal, and that's what started to puzzle more recently, this kind of push away from them. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the um, the voice surgery that people can get, mm. do elect for sometimes. And is that is that debulking the vo- vocal folds, or what, what does that involve? There's a few techniques. Um, for a long time, the main technique was... Um, um, there's a cricoid cartilage and a thyroid cartilage at the front of the neck yeah. and they would make an incision at the front of the neck pull the skin back and kind of suture the the thyroid cartilage and the cricoid cartilage together so you're you're closing a gap closing the cricothyroid gap and when you do that 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 pulls the vocal cords so they thin out so the voice the voice the vocal cords are tensioned and thinner tension cords make a higher pitch um and it was kind of i would say successful in some cases probably in about 50 60 percent kind of had lasting change but there was a big percentage that didn't and um i think it was because a lot of them didn't have therapy or adequate therapy or therapy with an experienced enough therapist beforehand and they didn't have any follow-up therapy so that made a difference and more recently they've they've um, been using um vocal cord shortening as well so if you the two things that um um that characterise female vocal cords are that they're thinner and shorter. So that's what the surgery tends to do. And you can do that by putting a suture there or, or creating a little web so the vocal cords shorten. And there's also some lasering that can be done to thin out the vocal cords. So there's a kind of a combined a glottoplasty approach and a cricothyroid tensioning approach that, that a lot of um, doctors are combining now. And that tends to yield the, the better results. Um, but as an adjunct to therapy as well. I think so. I think the cases of where um, people just get a result from surgery are still, you know, still quite rare. And I always prefer that people try to work on their voice first, because if they do and they get good enough therapy and they do well, you know, they're motivated enough, they will not require the surgery, you know. And I've had people who have had amazing voices in, in therapy. I think I played some at the lecture that I gave and uh, yes, they had did, great, yeah. great outcomes. And then they were still asking me for could I, you know, kind of put them forward for pitch surgery? And I was used to be get so disappointed about that because I thought I don't think I could have done anything different or better there. But it's all it shows you how deep the psychological um, concerns are about people's voices and their, and their perceptions. And you know, obviously, I would have worked with their with that, you know, explored that with them. But sometimes their arguments were very compelling. You know, like um, it would it would it would just help me relax so much more. I really want to start dating, and and this is the one thing that I'm still not, and I don't want anything to just give it away. And um, you know, so I think I think um, what I what I noticed was when they had the surgery was, and because I could trust the people I was referring them to as well, they weren't going to just go and disappear some faraway country and have it done. Um, you know, I knew they would get good care. They they did psychologically feel a lot more comfortable, and in both cases that I often play as teaching cases, they're voices were lower after surgery because what had happened was they'd actually relaxed a lot of the techniques they were lower but not lower in a way that it took them to a a male range um but they were lower in a way that made them feel more comfortable um, only by about say five or six hertz but it was interesting that they didn't maintain a higher pitch afterwards which you'd think was what they were searching for but that that psychological benefit security of having a pitch surgery just made them think well i you know i can just go forth now and you know, but I'm sure that all the pre-work they've done is what gave them that extra, extra outcome to their voice because it's not just about pitch, which is primarily what pitch or voice surgery does for trans females. It's more, it's there's lots of aspects involved. You know, um, how you use your voice and and tone the voice and variation in voice is not something that pitch surgery can necessarily give you. 
So yeah. I think there's always going to be a bigger role for speech and language therapy than voice surgery. Mm. Thank you for that. Um, I am aware of the time, so I am going to move on to yeah. our other topic that we're yeah. talking about today, and that is more about promoting speech and language therapy mm. as a profession. So my first one is looking into why our profession is quite undiverse. I mean, mm. it's primarily white middle-class females often and I just wanted to get your perspective on you know why what are the public perceptions of speech and language therapy that keeps it biased towards women and undiverse I think the public's perception of it is 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 kind of driven you know driven by how the profession has been really you know there's no way that's going to change unless in a way the profession does a little bit more to promote it in a different way and you know it's full of amazing good clinicians who do amazingly good things and do such a valuable job. I mean, I think you probably gathered from my, my lecture how proud I am of being a speech therapist in the profession and how, how in a way still I love it so much, you know. But what, what was, um, what's been disappointing to me, having had all that kind of wish to become a speech therapist and, and the way that, you know, my career, which has been a little bit un, unconventional, I suppose, in the way I've driven it, but, um, you know, has rewarded me in lots of ways but what's still disappointing is that when I do the lectures when I go places when I run the courses I'm seeing that 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 kind of population that you just described and um so there is there is definitely a lack of diversity I think traditionally it did come out of kind of you know nice ladies going to kind of a speech college and um you know it was the way it evolved you know like in the way that women have had to fight to evolve their professions that's been part of it it's always been harder for women and um you know, and I'm, I'm somebody who's massively into gender diversity and supporting all genders and all expressions of gender, but I'm still a feminist, you know, and that, that's, that's perfectly, those things can perfectly live together. And um, one of the things is, you know, I'm always admiring of women who've driven, driven their professions forward, you know, um, you know, made more CEOs in companies and done, and done initiatives to do that. And for us as a profession, I think because it's, it's still quite a mysterious profession to lots of people. Um, I think that's partly the problem. I don't think most of the public, if you stop them, would give a very good um, description of what a speech therapist does. And certainly they would not know how expansive and extensive the fields are as speech therapists. And that's like what I said when I was lecturing you recently was that for me, it was the fact that, oh, gosh, I'm a Gemini. I'm interested in lots of things and I'm quite creative. And, all and I thought this profession has got so much in it. You know, this is, you know, it's going to be communicative, but, you know, it's also got this kind of scientific side and it's got so many fields. And if I got fed up of this field, I could do this and I could do that. So from, you know, working with aphasis to the deaf, to autism, to voice, to despair, to all these things. And I don't think most of the public has a clue about that. And I think one of the things that all of us should be trying to do is bring it to people's attention a bit more, be able to showcase outcomes, be able to showcase what we do, and, and, you know, our college does brilliant things, you know, uh, with government and mixing with government and, you know, all that kind of thing. But I think it needs a slightly more popular approach to it in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even coming home and telling my housemates about my new placements I've had, even, you know, I've, I've uh, was placed um, on a dementia ward and my friend was doing head and neck cancer and lots of different things. Somebody was doing voice and I was telling my um, my housemates about it and they were like, well, why would why would you need a speech and language therapist there? <laughs> it was always a you know there, I mean, there was a big debate about the name you know about our name doesn't kind of trip off the tongue as easily as physio and uh, our acronyms like SLT and SALT don't particularly explain what we do whereas a physiotherapist is much cleaner you know um, maybe occupational therapist was always a bit hard as well but 
even as me as a voice specialist, you know, one of the things I, I try and teach people about is that I'm not a voice coach. You know, I'm not a voice teacher or a singing teacher because I work with lots of singers. I'm, I'm, I'm a speech and language, a voice specialist, which means I've, I'm an allied medical health professional. And that kind of allied part, you know, the health stuff is, um, is and the academic level we have to get to is, is not is not known, you know, and we get mixed up sometimes in, and whilst I love collaborating with all those people, it's not the same thing, you know. We are able to do voice rehab because we have links with medical professionals. So we can identify things, we can refer people, we can liaise with a GP, um, and it's, it's multi-connected and that makes it both brilliant, um, but also it's, it's, it's kind of a thing that lots of, um, I think the public aren't aware of. Yeah. And um, as speech and language ther- therapy students are going to be hopefully listening to this podcast, yes. What what kind of advice would you would you give us from the start of our careers to change these perspectives? Um, yeah. So think about the profession as a whole. Um, kind of appreciate the kind of its value. Its value to you know to society and what it can do. Um, <clears throat> showcase what you do like think about becoming good at the job because the better we are at the job the better outcomes we get for people the better people say i saw no speech like my child had a speech language therapist and she was amazing you know she did this my job um, or you know it was really good the speech therapist worked for my you know worked with my dad after his stroke and now it's so much better it's stuff like that it's but staying focused on outcomes for clients that's going to drive this profession forward because that's when people start saying you know, my friend had a speech, I want that for my child, or I want that, but I know someone who, and I have to say that, you know, if your business is, like mine has been bit mostly in reputation, not because of like advertising or seeking to get busy, actually, it's because people say somebody recommended you or this or that, and that's really important. And then if you can show outcomes and say, you know, so and so many people, you know, we did a survey and so many people said that, you know, they value speech and language therapy this much, even if it's that kind of survey or with me, it's easy with voice. I can I can play voices. I'm in the one of the easiest places to say a before, a before treatment and after treatment. I can get a subjective result. I can get an auditory result. I can get a, an objective measurement. I can measure pitches and irregularity. So for voices, really no excuse to not showcase outcomes. Um, I think other other professions it's harder but there's we can always get subjective feedback and it's really what matters to the client that's the most you know most important thing Um, so we've got to we've got to we've got to demonstrate that more I think Um, the more people understand what you do what outcomes are achievable um, the more interest there's going to be not only from the public but from other people wanting to become speech therapists like you say going back to the diversity why there's a lack of it people don't really know what it is a lot of the time and my, my foray into it was was quite unusual in a way in that I don't think I would have heard of speech and language therapy if I hadn't had a speech and language therapist as my child uh, sorry as a child for treatment you know and I was quite young then but I was always struck by the therapist actually not so much the therapy but by the therapist and um, when she said one day she couldn't come, I was disappointed because I liked her so much more than the teacher at the time. I was only very <laughs> small. I used to skip across the playground and love going to speech therapy um, because it was a chance where you got some attention and you could perform. And I remember the second lady was just, just as kind of nice to work with and just as, you know, it just was such a safe place for you to get something to help you. And that feeling hooked me in and, and taught me what there was the profession called speech and language therapy because it stuck with me. And when we went to careers training and all that, they said, what do you want to be? Oh, I want to be a speech therapist. And I wasn't really ideally suited for the amount of science they really kind of wanted you to have or, you know, scientific-ish stuff. Uh, but 
you know, and it was a bit of a long way round for me, you know, um, getting a different degree in humanities and, and then getting into a master's. But I got there in the end because the feeling or the knowledge of the job hooked me in. So, you know, I think that's that's the kind of level we need to try and, and, and get it into people's consciousness. You know, people who've had therapy, we need to try and gather more more testimonials from people. We need to, you know, and bring it to a, you know, bring it to a wider wider consciousness <laughs> <laughs> I like that <laughs> yeah well that's fantastic and really really inspiring to um yeah to hear someone who is so passionate about speech and language therapy mm. you know that really struck a chord with everyone in our lecture when you were really you know saying come on like we we've, we really yeah. need this profession and and it's true it's gonna it's gonna be a way we secure our futures I mean when I heard that the bursary was lost that speech therapy used to get I don't know if that's come back yet, Laura. I think, is it? No. Well, I'm hugely, hugely disappointed about that. I mean, it really upset me because it's just another way that it's not, you know, taken as seriously as it should be. And I'm sure our college campaigned really hard for that. But I think when there's people power behind it, we are a lot stronger. You know, anytime somebody can, anybody I've worked with, if they've got a bit of a profile, you know, anytime I can get them to say something to, to kind of help put this on the map, I'm doing that now. I would have been really shy to ask of that now. But now I'm thinking this is the kind of thing that brings it, unfortunately, to people's consciousness, any kind of, you know, celebrity contact, any kind of thing that just um, makes people just, oh, I didn't realise, you know. You know. Yeah. I mean, and also that taking the bursary away will impact diversity even more, I imagine. <laughs> it would. And we need to talk about that. And we need to make a fuss about it. You know, we need to somehow do a campaign, lobby a bit more. Or, you know, I know that um, now they've brought it back, I think, for nurses. Because when that happened to nurses, I thought, well, that's great. Now you're going to lose a load of good nurses. They're going to have to recruit loads of locums and people from abroad. And there'll be a shortage of nurses. You know, and that's exactly what happened. And that's pro probably likely... I mean, there's luckily there are more speech therapy um, students than there ever was. But now, you know, it might not be that there's many jobs for them. And I always remember being interviewed at UCL and them saying, you do know that them, first of all, they made, wanted to make me clear, you know, I was aware what speech therapists got paid, as if to say this is this is kind of more a vocation than a, a money job. And um, <laughs> secondly, the other one, I said, yes, I was very well aware. And the second thing, um, well, they said, but they said, you know, they're, you, you may not it may not be a very well paid job but you'll always have a you'll always have a job so now it's a better paid job but there's no guarantee so much of a job but you know i think it's lot it's very good that, that lots of therapists have set up privately as well because there's definitely a need for that and i i'm really all for like uh, people who work publicly and privately you know supporting each other a lot more than generally what i see because there's a need for both you know i've done both for so many years I've, lo I've loved my time in the NHS. I, I, you know, I've really been proud to work there. But I've been able to achieve things creatively, privately that I, that I couldn't do there because, you know, departments have restrictions and, and budgets. And so being able to excel in the way that just promotes the field, I think, is what's important and collaborating and, and working, you know, working together and just getting the best people doing, you know, the, the, you know, the best teaching and the best jobs, really. Fantastic. Well, I think that's an excellent note to finish on. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. Good Thanks luck with so your much. studies and your podcast. And yeah, we look forward to listening. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank Bye, you. Bye, Laura. <laughs> Bye. Thank you, Christella, for coming to chat to Laura. That was really interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, we had a great sex. chat. We actually, we actually carried on talking for about an hour after that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long one. That's the thing when you get speech therapists together, isn't it? That we can't, we can't resist a natter. I know. End up talking about speech therapy in particular. Yeah. Uh, for hours and hours. So <laughs> I'm not surprised, and it sounds like you guys had a really interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, well, it's something we going into our new careers, which is coming up soon. Yeah. God, scary soon. Yeah. Something to remember to keep promoting our profession as much as we can. Do you know what? I think that is goodbye from us. Oh god, the last one. Oh well remembered. I completely <laughs> forgot. <that. laughs> um yeah, well yeah. Goodbye from us. We've yeah. got two current year A's who will be year B's next year taking over from us, I believe. Yes, yeah. Um so the best of luck to them. I'm sure you're doing a fab job. Yeah, and thank you to everyone who's listened to our podcast. It's yeah, been... it's meant a lot. We've yeah. had a blast making it, despite making quite a lot of it from our own homes rather than yeah. <laughs> I think it's probably something that has got me through lockdown. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's been a real help. So <laughs> thank you for supporting us. Yeah. <laughs> And thank you to Stephen as well, who actually first came up with the idea. Yeah, so. Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for supporting us and helping us. Guiding uh, us through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Helping us to produce this. Um, it's been a lot of fun and I think it's, I think if we keep going in this way, then we'll really get speech and language therapy out there on the map for more people. So Indeed. Let's do it. So yes, it's goodbye from us. Goodbye. Thank you.